Biographical Bites from Bala number 11 for August 2022. Henrietta Cousins and the Red Rose Girls. episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Stories from Laurel Hill West, an historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kenwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It is more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year in the summer months from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There is plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is just to duck in while you're walking the Kenwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 11th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-August 2022. I tell a story of the love, trust, and total dependence on each other of four Philadelphia women at the start of the 20th century. Muralist Violet Oakley and illustrators Jesse Wilcox-Smith and Elizabeth Shippen-Green are all known to students of art. These three women were free to spend time on their artwork because of the fourth member of their group, Henrietta Cousins, who's interred in the Marion section at Laurel Hill West. Together, they were known as the Red Rose Girls. Without Henrietta, they would not have existed. When Virginia Woolf wrote her groundbreaking 1929 essay, A Room of One's Own, she talked about why many women authors failed to succeed. She contended that women could achieve success in any of the arts if they were given equal educational opportunities, financial independence, and privacy. She did not mention something else that they needed, a wife. Three Philadelphia female artists had figured this out three decades before Wolfe's groundbreaking essay. Elizabeth Shippen Green, Violet Oakley, and Jesse Wilcox-Smith became three of the top illustrators in the country by living together, critiquing each other's projects, promoting each other professionally, and even exhibiting as a group. They shared the same household for 14 years at a time when the concept of a new woman was emerging. Their careers skyrocketed. And there were never arguments about whose turn it was to wash the dishes or beat the rugs or cut the grass or pay the bills or walk the dog. 
All of this was taken care of by their darling little Hetty, a mutual friend who had minimal interest in art, but whom they loved fiercely and treated as an equal. Her full name was Henrietta Cousins, and she served as their wife. To discuss Henrietta, I must talk about the other three women and their careers. Jesse Wilcox Smith was the oldest of the three artists, born in 1863, the fourth of four children. She enjoyed a life of comfort, but not wealth. She was raised in a West Philadelphia twin at 210 South 41st Street, close to the newly relocated University of Pennsylvania campus. There were no artists in her family, although she did acquire a love of music. Jessie attended Quaker Friends Central School in Philadelphia, but went to Cincinnati to attend high school with her cousins. She then took a job as a kindergarten teacher and quickly realized she was not suited for that job. One of her friends was a budding artist, and Jessie was assigned a chaperone when her friend gave instructions to a young man. She got bored with reading her novel and joined in the lesson showing surprising talent as an illustrator. Years later, she wrote, I knew I wanted to do something with children, but I never thought of painting them until an artist friend saw a sketch I made and insisted I should go to art school. She returned to Philadelphia. She tried her hand at being a sculptor, but failed when her clay had bubbles in it and burst when it was being fired. The 21-year-old sought a way to attend art school, which was not terribly welcoming to women at that time, despite recent successes of Philadelphians Cecilia Bowe and Mary Cassatt. Thomas Sully's daughters, Jean Cooper Darley and Rosalie Sully, had tried to develop their careers as successful portraitists, but Rosalie's life withered away when her lover, the actress Charlotte Cushman, abandoned her to tour England in 1844. Rosalie died before her 30th birthday. The Philadelphia School of Design for Women, and now known as the Moore College of Art and Design, was founded in 1844. By 1880, it had moved to the Edwin Forrest Mansion at 1326 North Broad Street. That is now the site of Freedom Theater. Jessie attended classes, but found them unsatisfactory. She wanted something more. There was one and only one place for the serious aspiring artist to attend, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. There, she had exposure to the genius troublemaker Thomas Eakins, who was fired the year after Jesse's arrival for various scandals. For one thing, Eakins insisted that male cadavers being used by his female students should be complete. Paffa had made it a policy to castrate the cadavers before women could see them for their anatomy lessons. Although Jessie told her friends that Eakins was a madman, she learned a lot under his tutelage, especially anatomy, perspective, and photography, and she became an accomplished illustrator. Elizabeth Shippen Green came from two old-line Philadelphia families. Known as Bessie, she was born in 1871, the third of four children, and she grew up in a house at 1320 Spruce Street, which is just around the corner from what is now the Wilma Theater. Her father, Jasper Green, had once studied at PAFA, and he was a fine woodcarver who served as an artist correspondent for Harper's Magazine during the Civil War. 
Elizabeth went to private schools in the city and began drawing while there. She had no aspirations to be a fine artist. Rather, she wanted to be an illustrator like her father. She set up a corner of her bedroom near the window as her studio, and she used that space to draw for eight years. She sold a lot of her works to local newspapers. She could get as much as 50 cents for a one-column drawing. There was a huge market for illustrations, especially in magazines, of which there were thousands. And Philadelphia was the magazine capital of the United States. Ladies Home Journal alone had more than 700,000 subscribers. An 1890 study revealed that 88% of magazine subscribers were women, and more women were becoming illustrators. I've already talked about Alice Barber Stevens, interred at Laurel Hill West in the Philadelphia section, and Catherine Wireman, interred at Laurel Hill East in Section 9. They were in an earlier podcast about the Curtis Publishing Company. One day, in 1888, the 17-year-old Elizabeth Green marched into PAFA and showed several people her portfolio. She impressed them enough that she was accepted in the school. Her tuition was $8 per month. Her first magazine cover was published in December 1890. Soon her work was seen in Saturday Evening Post, St. Nicholas, Woman's Home Companion, The Critic, Harper's Weekly, and other magazines. And when she graduated from PAFA, she took a job with editor George W. Child's Philadelphia Public Ledger as a fashion illustrator. Child's is interred at Laurel Hill East. Elizabeth still had a way to go before becoming a recognized artist. The youngest of the three future artists was Violet Oakley, born in 1874 to a family of artists. She joked, I was born with a paintbrush in my mouth instead of a silver spoon. She had to paint. Later in life, she confessed that when her painting materials were not nearby, she would paint the roof of her mouth with her tongue. Violet grew up in New Jersey, the youngest of three sisters. Their mother, an accomplished painter who gave up her career when she married, encouraged all the girls to draw and paint. Her parents considered Violet a sickly child. She frequently suffered from attacks of asthma. They were hesitant to send her off to Vassar, like her older sister Hester. When the family visited Europe in 1895, Violet and Hester traveled to Paris for art instruction, which Violet plunged into. When they returned to the United States, Hester switched her talents to writing, and she became a successful author. Violet took a train to Philadelphia so she could attend the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and study under Cecilia Bow, PAFA's first female instructor. Several years later, Violet would become the second female instructor despite dropping out after only one semester. Hester decided to take a class from master illustrator Howard Pyle, who had started an illustration class at Drexel University. Drexel had opened only six years earlier. Pyle, who was from Delaware, was one of the few illustrators who had not started as a painter. Rather, he spent his whole career doing only illustration. Among his male students were Maxfield Parrish and N.C. Wyeth, both of whom show his influence. Pyle was a paradox. He stated plainly, 
Girls are, after all, at best, only qualified for sentimental work. Yet when he had talented women students, he encouraged their work and inquired important commissions for them. After establishing a glass ceiling for women artists, he then pushed as many to the top of the room as possible. After her first class, Hester rushed home and told Violet she simply had to attend his classes. Violet nervously presented her portfolio to Pyle. He said, I think I can help you. Hester and Violet got together enough money to rent a studio on the third floor of the Love Building at 1523 Chestnut Street. Violet was 22 years old. On their first day of Pyle's class, Violet met the older and more confident Jesse Smith and Elizabeth Green, both of whom were already selling their works. A fast friendship developed. Pyle was an inspiring teacher. Jesse said years later, we would hear more in one afternoon than we could assimilate in a year. Students found at first it was impossible to not imitate him. Male and female students sat side by side and were given the same assignments. He also inspired the three women to make hard choices about life. He told them, when a woman marries, that's the end of her. He quickly found Jesse and Violet their first important commission, a series of illustrations for Longfellow's Evangeline, published in 1897. This project brought the women together in a friendship that would last a lifetime. They decided to share space in the Love Building, where the owner, Clement C. Love, charged them $18 a month for the studio and living space. Sometimes, when the women were arrears in their rent, the landlord would forgive them, earning him their special nickname for him, Clemency Love. The Evangeline Project was a huge success, leading to more commissions for Oakley and Smith, covers for Woman's Home Companion, Collier's Illustrated Weekly, The Century Magazine, and others. When the female-only plastic club was organized as an answer to the male-only sketch club, Green, Smith, and Oakley were three charter members. The three women realized that they belonged together in what was considered at the time a romantic friendship, an accepted term for women who chose to share a life together. They took a vow that they would stay together forever and never marry. And the commissions poured in for their artwork. But fame had its price. Their work in the Chestnut Street studio was constantly being interrupted by people climbing the three flights of stairs just to chat or pedal matchsticks or to see what was new or simply because they were in the neighborhood. And on hot summer days in those times before air conditioning, their studio with its large skylights became intolerable. They initially rented summer rooms in a dormitory at the largely deserted Bryn Mawr College campus, taking advantage of suburban breezes and also garnishing a commission to illustrate the 1901 calendar for the college. But toward the end of that summer, they went further out the main line to visit a site called the Red Rose Inn in the suburb of Villanova. The three of them, especially Violet, fell in love with the place. While visiting, Violet had a mystical experience and felt that she had lived there before, maybe in a prior life. When she was once asked if she had been a nun in a prior life, Violet replied, 
No, the abbesses and the sisters were too busy nursing the sick and doing fine needlework. I have never heard of them illustrating manuscripts. I am quite sure that I was a monk. They found that the property was beyond their price range, and it was snapped up by banker Anthony J. Drexel, founder of the university where they had studied under Pyle. He got it for $200,000, and they almost gave up their dream. But they pooled their resources, and things fell into place. They found that they could rent the inn and signed a lease for a year and a half. The house was everything they had hoped for, and it was theirs for $125 per month. Some friends told them that this was a risky move. They would be miles away from all the potential publishers in the heart of Philadelphia. They traded convenience for solitude, and it paid off. Jesse had an older friend whom she thought would be a perfect housemate and was eager to join them, Miss Henrietta Cousins. The four women started spending all their time together. Before they left the Love Building, they posed for a photographer in what is probably the best-known photo of the group. Elizabeth Shippen Green, Violet Oakley, and Jesse Wilcox Smith are sitting on a couch, each with a long-stemmed rose in her hand and Henrietta Cousins is hovering above them with a watering can, acting as their gardener. The metaphor is perfect. Henrietta became mother, housewife, nurturer, caretaker, and gardener for the Red Rose Girls. At age 43, Henrietta was older than the other three women. She was the daughter of a cotton broker and had never married, although she was briefly engaged in 1888. She and 39-year-old Jessie Smith were ideal companions, but she was nearly a generation older than Elizabeth, age 31, and Violet, age 28. Henrietta was not an artist, but there is evidence that she had attended PAFA at one time, and that's where she met Jessie. Her brother-in-law, Edmund Lewis, was one of the most popular landscape painters in Philadelphia. Henrietta leapt at the opportunity to manage their household. She would arrange the cooking and cleaning, she'd take care of the pets that would soon accumulate, and especially she would mind the garden, lush with red roses. She was secretary and treasurer for the household and could sometimes even be pressed to model for one of the artists. The four women became inseparable. They even chose a common surname taking the C from Cousins, O from Oakley, G from Green, and S from Smith. They were now the Coggs family and started calling each other sisters. It was their teacher, mentor, and friend Howard Pyle who called them the Red Rose Girls, a name that has stuck until today. The presence of Henrietta Cousins allowed the other three a room of one's own. Each artist had her own studio, and all her time could be spent in painting or planning painting. They came together for meals and recreation. Their situation was something new and unheard of, independent and feminine, attractive without boyfriends, childless without apology, and financially successful without male providers. The degree of their physical intimacy has been discussed at length by their biographers, but will probably never be known. Careers flourished. 
In August 1901, Elizabeth Shippen Green signed an exclusive contract with Harper's Magazine, which would be renewed every year for the next 23 years. One of her editors said she was, quote, the best thing ever to happen to the magazine, end quote. In 1902, the three had a joint exhibit at the Plastic Club. A reviewer wrote, Perhaps the work of no other three artists could be so well hung together than these, for there is to some extent a harmony of interests and methods and points of view. They all have the decorative tendency well developed. In fact, it may be said to predominate. End quote. Also in 1902, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania was starting to build a new Capitol building in Harrisburg. The architect Joseph Miller Houston, interred at Laurel Hill West, saw the building as not only a place of business, but as a museum to applaud the region's history. When someone showed him some of Violet Oakley's recent work, he decided to take a chance and he hired the 28-year-old woman to create a series of 18 murals for the governor's reception room. She would receive $20,000 for what was estimated to be a four-year project. I will talk more about Houston in a podcast next year on white-collar crime. Henrietta kept busy with the household and the vast gardens. She managed the cooking and cleaning with assistance of hired help. She paid the bills and kept the books. She took care of the family pets, a Persian cat named Coggs and a massive St. Bernard named Prince. The gigantic crimson climbing rose, which gave the property its name, also kept her busy, but it was a labor of love. When the women walked their property, they measured it not in acres, but in poetry. It was a four sonnet walk from the house to the meadow on the far side of the lake. Occasionally, Henrietta would leave to visit family or friends for a few days, and things would start to fall apart at the Red Rose Inn. As soon as she returned, everything quickly righted itself, and it was once again a serene homestead. Violet's mother came to live with them, as well as Elizabeth's elderly parents, making a household of seven. Some people felt that the older generation would serve as chaperones for the four younger women. The inn seemed to bring all of them good luck. Jessie's covers appeared regularly on Collier's Magazine. The magnificent book A Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson, with her illustrations, was released by Scribner's in New York and Longman's Green and Company in London. It received rave reviews on both sides of the ocean. And Jessie Wilcox Smith received a 10% royalty on all copies of the book sold in the United States and 5% on foreign sales. In 1903, Jessie received the Mary Smith Prize, given annually to a woman artist who showed, quote, the most originality of subject, beauty and design and drawing, and finesse of color and skill of execution, end quote. Previous winners had been Emily Sartain, twice, Cecilia Bow four times, and Alice Barber Stevens. In 1903, the Society of Illustrators elected Elizabeth as one of its first two women members. Jesse and Violet were voted in the next year. In 1905, 
Elizabeth got good news from PAFA when she was chosen as recipient of the Mary Smith Prize. That same year, she was one of seven leading artists who contracted to work exclusively for Collier's Magazine, along with Charles Dana Gibson, Maxfield Parrish, A.B. Frost, interred at Laurel Hill East, and Howard Pyle's best man, Frank X. Leyendecker, E.W. Kemble, and Frederick Remington, what we would now recognize as the all-star team of the golden age of illustration. Then came a knock on the door in January 1906. Anthony J. Drexel decided he had better use for the Red Rose Inn and delivered an eviction notice. They had until May 1st to find a new studio and place to live for seven adults, four cats, and a large St. Bernard. Moving back to Center City was out of the question. They appealed to Elizabeth's well-connected relatives for suggestions. Their savior was one of Philadelphia's wealthiest citizens, Dr. George Woodward, whose father-in-law, a railroad man, Henry Howard Houston, practically invented Chestnut Hill. George had inherited 300 acres of land on rolling hills between the Cresheim and Wissahickon Creeks, where the McCallum Street Bridge now goes over the creek. Woodward had built a series of houses, which he did not sell, but rented out for 6% of the building cost. The tenants paid all the taxes and covered internal repairs. Woodward agreed to renovate the Hill Farm, just opposite his Chestnut Hill Holdings, and even hired art professor and landscape designer George Walter Dawson to recreate as best as possible the outdoor gardens of the Red Rose Inn, including the fountain and the pergola. Now, while the women hated leaving the Red Rose Inn, they were extraordinarily grateful for the new home, which they immediately named Cogsley, their acronym with Lee, L-E-A, for the sloping land. They started calling George Woodward St. George. The name stuck. That section of what was once Allen's Lane is now St. George's Road, and Cogsley is now a National Historic Site. It's tucked behind the Allen's Lane Arts Center. As soon as their boxes were unpacked, the artists went back to work, and Henrietta went to the garden. The house was within easy walking distance of the Allens Lane train station, and they started spending more time in Center City. Violet Oakley finished the Capitol Building murals for the governor's reception room in 1906. They were a massive success, and more commissions came her way. She was employed to do the murals for the Senate Chamber, 1911 to 1920, and the Superior and Supreme Court Chambers, 1917-1927. No other woman had been entrusted with such a monumental task. It took her nearly a quarter of a century to complete the 43 murals. Now, the Cogs all became friends with the Woodwards, which got their names out among moneyed Philadelphians. Through the Woodwards, they were also introduced to a young architect named Eugene Elliott, who had studied in Paris. Eugene, whose name looks like Huger, H-U-G-E-R, took a liking to Violet, who most definitely was not looking for a husband. He started showing up in Elizabeth Green's illustrations. One day he proposed to her. Now, for ten years, these women had kept no secrets from one another, so they just assumed that Elizabeth would turn down the offer. 
she did stonewall Elliot, saying that she would accept his engagement, but she would not consider marriage until her parents had died. Eugene Elliot took a job teaching at Harvard and left for Cambridge. Henrietta and Jesse's relationship was turning into something more than friendship, and they spent more and more time together away from the younger two women. In 1906, when Jessie had accumulated some money, she decided that she wanted to travel to England. But she was heartbroken when Henrietta absolutely refused to accompany her and would not budge from Cogsley. Hetty was 47, Jessie was 43. They missed each other terribly during her absence and composed long, loving letters. More than the other Red Rose girls, Henrietta was entirely dependent, both emotionally and financially, on her Cogsley family. She had no career and very few financial resources. If Cogsley dissolved, she would become a burden on her own family. Although there were many contemporary newspaper and magazine articles written about the Red Rose girls, Henrietta was barely, if ever, mentioned. But it was her industriousness that allowed for her housemate's genteel lifestyle and uninterrupted productivity. The management of Cogsley was a demanding job, and she worked just as tirelessly as her three friends. Occasionally, she had to remind her friends of her value. Once a late-blooming rose drew the artists to the garden in November with their cameras. But Henrietta reminded them, Gardens are not made beautiful by singing, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. She was the one who weeded, pruned, and kept the household beautiful and orderly. In 1907, the New York Society of Illustrators selected their first five female members. Three of them were Elizabeth Shippen Green, Jesse Wilcox Smith, and Violet Oakley. In 1909, Elizabeth's mother died, and her father followed the next year. They're both interred in the Marion section of Laurel Hill West. Now she no longer had an excuse to not marry Eugene Elliott, but she still kept putting him off. In October 1910, Elliott took the train to Allen's Lane Station, walked down the road to Cogsley, and gave Elizabeth an ultimatum. Marry me now, or the engagement is off. She was 39 years old and had been with her friends since she moved out of her parents' house at 26. The four women had made an agreement that she would violate if she left them. She caved in and accepted. She told Jesse and Violet first. She waited to tell Henrietta until she came in from the garden. Henrietta said nothing, just turned her back and walked into the room where Jesse and Violet were sitting. Blinking back her tears, she asked her friends, how can she love anyone more than she loves us? And on June 3, 1911, Elizabeth Shippen Green became Elizabeth Green Elliot, and the Red Rose girls were no longer together. Needless to say, Elizabeth missed her sisters intensely and wondered if marriage was right for her. But she refused to allow her marriage to interfere with her career. Over 44 years, her works illustrated more than 30 books and countless magazines. You can buy contemporary wall calendars with her work from Amazon. 
and when her original charcoal drawings and sketches do come on the market, they usually go for between twenty and thirty thousand dollars. Uh, back at Cogsley, Henrietta, Jesse, and Violet piece their lives back together. In 1910, the now 36-year-old Violet had accepted an invitation to teach mural decoration at PAFA and was enchanted by one of her eager young students, a 22-year-old named Edith Emerson. The two became inseparable, and Edith eventually moved into Cogsley. When Violet got her two later commissions for the Harrisburg Capitol building, she needed more studio space for her huge murals. Some were as wide as 45 feet. Jesse and Henrietta moved to a smaller house down the road at the corner of St. George and McCallum, which they call Cugs Hill. Jesse Wilcox Smith, Elizabeth Shippen Green Elliott, and Violet Oakley lived well into the 20th century but barely changed their Victorian ways. They never cut their hair, shortened their skirts, or learned to drive. They were happy with their floor-length gowns and dresses for the remainder of their lives. Even while in the strenuous business of painting massive murals, Violet Oakley was on her ladders and scaffolds in her corset and hoop skirt. They were never known to be suffragists, nor did they ever identify as new women. As the Red Rose girls broke up, they remained in affectionate partnerships. Jesse with Henrietta, Elizabeth with Eugene Elliott, and Violet with Edith Emerson. In 1920, Eugene Elliott took the position of president of the Philadelphia Museum of Industrial Arts. And through the generosity of the Woodwards, he and Elizabeth secured a house ready for renovation on Chrisheim Road at Emelin, near both Cogsley and Cogs Hill. Eugene died of a heart attack in 1948. Elizabeth, in 1954, at age 82, with her funeral services at Laurel Hill West. But Eugene and Elizabeth are buried at the University of the South Cemetery in Tennessee. In 1917, Jessie was selected to be the cover artist for Good Housekeeping magazine, a job she held until 1933. She did posters and advertisements for Ivory Soap, Quaker Oats, American Radiator, and even Campbell's Soup, although she did not invent the Campbell's Kids. That honor goes to her contemporary Philadelphia illustrator Grace Drayton, who's interred at Holy Cross Cemetery in Yaden. She also started accepting portrait commissions. And during the Depression, her income was more than $30,000 a year, as each cover would bring her $3,000. By 1935, Jessie was bedridden and almost blind. The night before she died, Violet had a vision of her leaving her bed and floating outside into the garden. She died on May 5th and left Cogs Hill and her $240,000 estate to Henrietta, who outlived her by five years and died at 81. Jesse is interred with family at Woodlands Cemetery. On the Woodlands virtual tour page, she is identified as an LGBTQ plus artist. When Henrietta died, she was buried with family members in the Marion section of Laurel Hill West, not far from Elizabeth's parents and across the street, literally from the father of scientific management, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Her personal papers are held at Bryn Mawr College and measure 14.5 feet 
of correspondence, reminiscences, household notes, and everyday expenses. Violet, Jesse, and Elizabeth have all had biographers. Henrietta deserves one. Violet Oakley continued to paint murals. They are still breathtaking when you visit the Pennsylvania State Capitol building, especially the staggering international unity and understanding freeze which overlooks the Senate chamber. Despite all of her magnificent works, money remained a problem even late in life. Violet and Edith once again had to seek a bailout from their guardian angel, St. George Woodward, but they lived in Cogsley until Violet's death in 1961. She is buried in massive Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. She was one of the stops on the first LGBTQ plus tour given at Greenwood a few years ago, and the find a grave photo of her headstone features a rainbow flag. Edith Emerson learned well from her teacher and life partner, Violet Oakley. And in 1916, the 28-year-old was awarded the commission for designing and painting murals for what was then called Philadelphia's Little Theater. Now we know it as Plays and Players Theater at 17th and Delancey. And the murals are there, although seriously in need of careful restoration. Edith established the Violet Oakley Memorial Foundation and served as the vice president, president, and curator of the Woodmere Art Museum in the Chestnut Hill neighborhood from 1940 to 1978. She outlived Violet by 20 years, dying in 1981 and interred in New Hope, Bucks County. If you have not done so yet, go to Google Images and put in the names Elizabeth Shippen Green and then Jesse Wilcox Smith. Prepare to be charmed and entertained simultaneously. Then go to Violet Oakley's murals and prepare to be overwhelmed. All three of these women were masters of their craft, and if alive today, they would agree that they could not have done it without their sister, Henrietta Cousins. I am sure that you've noticed by now that we have rebranded. We are now Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia and Laurel Hill West in Balakinwood. The Friends Organization is now, once again, Friends of Laurel Hill. We still offer the same benefits to members, discounts on tours at both cemeteries and in the gift shop, members-only tours, two annual members-only podcasts, Membership is a terrific gift for you or for friends and relatives who share your love for Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Next edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of August. The next edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of August. Did you know that at least five former directors of the United States Mint are interred at Laurel Hill East, not to mention melters, coiners, engravers, and others. And then there are the coin collectors, the numismatists. I will discuss the origins of the United States Mint and several of our permanent residents in the next episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, Mint Condition. Expect that podcast on or about August 26th. Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 12 in mid-September, 
will tell of one of the pioneering civil rights leaders in Philadelphia, Ms. C. Dolores Tucker. She marched alongside Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery. She was the convening founder and national chair of the National Congress of Black Women Incorporated. She served as secretary of the Commonwealth. Late in life, she condemned sexually explicit and misogynistic lyrics in gangster rap, and her last name of Tucker made for convenient rhymes for rappers who put her down. Expect that podcast on or about September 9th. What about tours? Well, there are two August hotspot tours. Introductory tours at Laurel Hill East on Saturday, August 13th at 10 a.m. and Thursday the 18th also at 10 a.m. A tour about the generals of Laurel Hill East called Lead Follower Get Out of the Way will be Sunday the 14th at 10 a.m. The one that I am anticipating is Call in the Cavalry, First City Troop. We start at the 23rd Street Armory and look at their archives, and then we move to Laurel Hill East. That one is on Saturday, August 20th, starting at 10 a.m. Check the website, laurelhillphl.com, for details. And if you want self-guided tours, they're available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, you download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcast. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit. The self-guided tour coming back from Pencoid to Barmouth is almost completed. It should be out soon. I'm working on a second draft of the script right now. Look for those wherever you listen to your podcast. And in September, I'm giving two tours. The first is a virtual pay-what-you-wish tour on Wednesday, September 14th, starting at 6.30, where I will talk about people interred at both cemeteries. And then the other is a live Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour at Laurel Hill West on Saturday, September 24th at 10 a.m. That happens to be my 75th birthday, and I couldn't think of a better place to spend it. Come celebrate with me. I plan to have cake, maybe ice cream. We'll see. Tickets for all these events are available from our website, laurelhillphl.com slash events. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer, tour guide, and podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. Bibliography is up next. There's nothing specific about Henrietta Cousins. I had to go to biographical information about the other Red Rose Girls, and there's a lot of good information out there. Women Illustrators of the Golden Age of American Illustration by Helen Goodman. Woman's Art Journal, Volume 8, Number 1, Spring-Summer 1987, pages 13 to 22. A Rose by Any Other Name, Violet Oakley, Jesse Wilcox-Smith, and Elizabeth Shippen Green by Charlotte Herzog, Woman's Art Journal, Fall 1993, Winter 1994, pages 11 to 16. Violet Oakley, American Renaissance Woman by Patricia Licos Ricci, The Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, April 2002, Volume 126, Number 2, pages 217 to 248. And the early career of Violet Oakley, illustrator by Bailey Van Hook. That was from Woman's Art Journal, Spring-Summer 2009, Volume 30, Number 1, pages 29 to 38. 
But the major source, by far, was The Red Rose Girls, An Uncommon Story of Art and Love by Alice A. Carter. It's Harry N. Abrams Incorporated, New York, 2000. If you collect art books, this is an essential. Not only does it have photographs of the women that I'm sure are not any place else, but just page after page of their gorgeous illustrations. It's a really nice collection. It's reasonably priced if you can find a used copy. The Red Rose Girls, An Uncommon Story of Art and Love by Alice A. Cooper. Thank you for listening to the end. Maybe I'll see you at the cemetery. Stay safe. Stay well.